I was actually in honor of Halloween month. I was actually thinking about doing a Dracula. Let us do the podcast. This episode is sponsored by Frontend Masters. They have a terrific lineup of live courses you can attend either online or in person. They also have a terrific backlog of courses you can watch, including JavaScript The Good Parts, Build Web Applications with Node.js, AngularJS In-Depth, and Advanced JavaScript. You can go check them out at frontendmasters.com. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A., Bid on JavaScript developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average JavaScript developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they give you a $2,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the JavaScript Jammer link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept the job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash JavaScript Jammer. This episode is sponsored by Widgmo 5, a brand new generation of JavaScript controls. A pretty amazing line of HTML5 and JavaScript products for enterprise application development in that Widgmo 5 leverages ECMAScript 5 and each control ships with AngularJS directives. Check out the faster, lighter, and more mobile Widgmo 5. This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the provider I use to host all of my creations. All the shows are hosted there, along with any other projects I come up with. Their user interface is simple and easy to use, their support is excellent, and their VPSs are backed on solid-state drives and are fast and responsive. Check them out at DigitalOcean.com. If you use the code JavaScriptJabber, you'll get a $10 credit. This episode is brought to you by Braintree. If you're a developer or manager of a mobile app and searching for the right payments API, check out Braintree. Braintree's new V0 SDK makes it easy to support multiple mobile payment types with one simple integration. To learn more and to try out their sandbox, go to braintreepayments.com slash JavaScript Jabber. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 181 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel, we have Amy Knight. Hello. Dave Smith. Hey, hey, hey. Jameson Dance. Hey, friends. Joe Eames. Hey, everybody. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Uh, just want to do a quick shout-out. I just launched the JS Remote Conf website, so if you are interested in attending that conference, go to jsremoteconf.com. Uh, you can use the code JABBER to get 25% off. Another thing to point out is nobody else laughed except Joe at Dave's. Like, we have stone faces. We're professionals. Yeah, that's you have no right. idea how hard that was. Or you have no sense of humor. I just didn't get to my unmute fast enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's almost like he made a cat joke. joke? <laughs> we, do, we have two guests today. We have Andrew Clark. Hi, everyone. And Dan Abramov. Hi. Do you want to introduce yourselves quickly? I know, Dan, you were on a couple of weeks ago, but... Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm Andrew Clark. I uh, work at a company called OpenGov. I've been doing web development for about oh, like a year and a half. And uh, I was the creator of a Flux library called Flummox, and I have a few other libraries, and I help out Dan on Redux. Yeah, so my name is Dan, and I'm mostly uh, visible in React ecosystem. I started uh, doing JavaScript a few years ago, and I'm known as creator of React Controller, the controlling thing for React and Redux, which is a take on, uh, on Flux, but it's not exactly Flux. All right, well... 
I don't even know where to start. So somebody else help me out. <laughs> we we talked a little bit about Redux a couple of episodes ago, but I don't think we ever sat down and talked about Flux. And Flux is kind of a more broader idea. Can one of you give us an explanation of what Flux is? Flux is a, it's a solution for doing data management in a JavaScript application. It was released about let's see, in May of 2014 uh, by the folks at Facebook uh, as kind of an accompaniment to the React library. Uh, React is kind of unique from these other uh, libraries like Ember and Angular, and that doesn't ha- really have a built-in solution for doing data management. Uh, like typically, you would use uh, model view controller, model view view, some kind of system like that. Uh, it's really an alternative to one of those types of systems, and uh, in a way, you can think of it as an inversion of MVC. Uh, whereas in MVC, you have these views that will update these models directly. Uh, in Flux, it's a little bit of an inversion uh, where the stores update themselves. Uh, they broadcast a change event, and then the views reflect whatever state the stores are currently in. Uh, and all the data goes in a unidirectional flow. So it goes really well with the unidirectional data flow that in the React model. It's not necessarily tied to React, but effectively it is kind of the unofficial way to do data management in React applications. For people that aren't familiar with it still, do you think there's any benefit in explaining it by contrasting it with MVC? Or do you think that that is, it's just too different? I've heard some people kind of explain it in those terms and it, for people who've only done MVC sort of helps a little. Yeah, like, so I I come from an interesting point of view because I actually haven't done that much application development before I did application development with React. Uh, I made an iOS app, so I was familiar with MVC that way. Uh, it's probably not, like, if you're coming from it without any knowledge of Flux at all, I don't think it's all that helpful to contrast to MVC. I would maybe just think of it as kind of an extension of the unidirectional flow of React. So if you're familiar with the way data flows in a React app, where things start at the top component and flow down as props to the uh, down the component tree, this is just kind of an extension of that flow where if you need to uh, store data in kind of an external system that's not just local to a component, that's kind of the best way for, for me to think about it. Um, there's, there's some charts out there, which personally I think are a little bit confusing, but you'll see there are basically three main parts. There's the dispatcher, uh, and we'll talk about dispatcher and, and it's... For instance, Redux doesn't have a dispatcher, but if we're talking about Flux in general, usually there's a dispatcher, there are stores, and there are views. Uh, and those are the three main kind of areas of a Flux application. And then you have these things called actions, which are, if we're going to compare it back to MVC again, those are basically like events. And uh, every, all these events flow through the dispatcher, uh, go to the stores, which go to the, and then uh, the views update with the stores. Uh, and it just goes in this kind of circular unidirectional flow. So it's, I'm just realizing now it's kind of hard to explain unless you're uh, actually looking at it. Uh, Dan, do you have a better way of uh, of explaining it? Uh, I, I would just add that I don't fully agree that it doesn't make sense to compare them with, uh, compare Flux with MVC because actually when I explain Flux to people, I usually compare it with MVC. And the way I compare it is that uh, I explain what Flux doesn't have. And this kind of helps people get up to speed with it. And so what I say is that Flux does not have models. Because in, right. in a way, yes, you have stores, but and they are kind of like models, but uh, they don't have setters, right? You can't set things. You can't modify them from outside. And this is a b- big important thing about Flux. 
And another important thing is that uh, you don't have a bunch of objects uh, that you call methods on. Like in MVC, you have models and you are usually, uh, they're like active records. They have some methods, uh, you call them and they modify the state, but you don't have that in Flux. So this is one thing that falls apart. And another uh, important aspect of Flux is that it doesn't have different kinds of change events. So normally in any MVC application, you have this field changed, this other field changed, and there are all different events. But in Flux, you've got just one change event. There are no other change events. So that's kind of what helps people understand some aspects of Flux architecture if they come from MVC. That's a good way of putting it is, um, yeah, stores don't have direct setters. Another thing that really helped me was... When you think about how a view reacts to a store update, uh, the store updates, it receives an action, it updates themselves, and it emits a single change event. It doesn't have like different levels of granularity for those change events. It basically just broadcasts to the world, hey, I've changed. And then the views uh, just reactively, they reflect the, they always reflect whatever the truth is inside the store. Uh, yeah, so that, that, that's the reason, uh, so, sorry for interrupting you. Uh, no I just want to say that uh, that's the reason why Flux uh, uh, did not exist before React, because we didn't have a view framework right. that can just uh, update the view in res- just to reflect some model. You always had to uh, d- do something. Uh, you had Very to specify change. Yeah, yeah. All right, so I heard a couple of things that I want to go back to and talk about that you guys said. So, Andrew, you had said when you were talking about Flux and the one-way data flow, you compared it. You said it's a natural extension of React's flow from the top-level component down through the bottom-level components as data flows from that top-level component and down, Mm -hmm. which I find to be a very interesting statement as talking about that as the one-way data flow. Every time I talk to people about one about one-way data flows versus two-way data flows. It's not so much, rep, you know, the components are kind of also a representation of the DOM tree. So it's not a matter of where it flows in relationship to the DOM. It's where it flows from changes to your model through rendering then into the DOM versus top of the DOM going on down. So I find that to be an interesting view, one that I've never heard anybody take before. So I don't know, is that just my ignorance? Uh, well, do you mind asking, do, do you use React often, or which framework are you usually using? Well, I'm far more experienced with Angular than re- with React. Okay, well, in React, at least, I, I don't really have that much Angular experience, but in React, at least, the main way that you, when you're talking about just the, the view part or the component layer, when you're passing information from a component to another component, the only way to do that in React well, there's this big asterisk here, but we'll call context, but we'll ignore it. The only way to do that in React is via props, which are analogous to like attributes on a DOM node, uh, like you'd write in HTML. The only way to pass information is via these props, and they always they can only go one direction. You pass a prop from uh, the owner node down to its children inside the render method. That is the only way to pass things. It's a really nice part about React because it makes everything very predictable and it means when you're looking at a component, you always know exactly where all the data is coming from because it can only come from its props. And you always know where it's passing data to because you're, you're passing it via the props to its children. If you ever want to do any mimic any kind of two-way data binding, 
in React, what you have to do is you have to do things like pass a callback down to the child, and then the child will call that callback, and that allows the parent to access some new information. So, for instance, that's how you implement an input field or a form in React, is you have to pass these callbacks, these uh, change handlers down to his children. So if you're just first learning React, that's a little bit different than how some other frameworks have done it in the past, where you'd have two-way data binding. And there is a little bit more... I guess boilerplate involved, or that might be the wrong word, but there is a little bit more steps that you have to do to get that to happen. But that's the essence of unidirectional data flow is that data always flows from the top down to the bottom. Flux gives you a way to kind of extend that looping model where rather than passing a callback to the child, uh, if you're using Flux, you can fire off an action which goes to a di the dispatcher, which is completely separate from the component tree, and then the dispatcher sends it to the stores, and then the stores go back to the view. It just makes that loop a little bit bigger and allows you to do things that aren't mapped so tightly to the component tree. Sometimes data doesn't necessarily need to flow in the, in the form of that tree. Well, I find it interesting that you consider the flow of the data through the DOM to be the salient point here. As I see and read and, and, and discourse with people about this topic, it seems to be that the focus is on the data flow through its changes and not necessarily through the DOM. So for example, when you say React has a one-way data flow from top to bottom in the DOM, yes, it does, but I don't consider that to make it what most people would consider to be the one-way data flow. One-way data flow, is, as I see it, is a matter of I've made changes to the data. Now I've got to completely render that out, and I can't, during rendering, make other further changes to the data. And that's... Um well, you're correct, and I don't think that's wrong. I don't know if necessarily if we even disagree here. I will just say that I would make a distinction between the a component tree and the DOM tree, because at least personally, I've stopped thinking of my React components as just map. They don't necessarily always map to a DOM node, right? They're just ways of encapsulating different parts of the application. Yeah, no, normally you have DOM nodes at the leaf, uh, at the leaf part of the tree. So most of your most of your wrap you express as components passing props to other components, and DOM is at the very bottom of that. Right, right. right. This might be a good time to introduce this article you shared with us before the the show called "Why right. Flux Component Is Greater Than Flux Mixin," because I think this is some of the context where you're coming from, right, Andrew? Yeah, and there's another one right next to that that Dan wrote called uh, "What Was It Called Again, Dan?" It was uh, "Mixins Are Dead." Yeah, mixins are dead, long-lived composition. And this is an important concept. We're kind of getting away from Flux here a little bit, but this is an important concept in React in that the primary way of scaling your React app, the primary uh, pattern that you use is composition, not mixins or inheritance or anything like that. So that's why this maybe there's some confusion about the term unidirectional data flow, is you have to think about data passing down through these components. So that article I wrote, Why Flux Component is Better Than Flux Mixin, uh, it's kind of a weird title. It's It was specifically a document that I wrote for my library called Flummox. And this was back in a time when there was this explosion of Flux libraries um, since F Facebook never really uh, released an official Flux framework. And a lot of them were coming up with solutions for how to integrate with your React components in a not you know, terribly repetitive way because uh, what people were doing at, uh, before these frameworks was they would uh, just manually subscribe to, you know, these event events and they would use these lifecycle hooks to and call set state. And it was just a lot of boilerplate. So these, these libraries started coming out with these mix-ins that you could apply to your React components to kind of do all that stuff for you. And around the time I wrote this article, I was realizing, you know, is with React, you don't really want to use these mix-ins. It's much nicer if you can use a component-based interface for describing how to subscribe to store updates. So this was an article just showing how 
mixins, they're very popular in other types of libraries and people might feel comforted by them. But if you're going to use React and take full advantage of the React component architecture, you want to use components whenever possible in preference to mixins. This is also related to this another link that I put in that document called describing what higher order components are. Very, another very important concept in React, especially recently, where rather than using mixins, uh, you describe these functions that will return a component. And that way, all of your abstractions are just based around components and, and rather than having to inherit from all these different things using mixins. Sorry, uh, if I could just interrupt for a very quick statement, I want to say is that, that just to cl- clarify about the top-down data flow, the important part is that in React, uh, any kind of state is owned by some component. So it, it, if uh, there is an input state, it needs to be stored in some component, either this component or some component of the tree, and uh, only this component can change it. So with Flux, what happens is that we uh, store that state somewhere outside of component, and we need an entry point for that in component tree. So this is what this Flux component does. And previously, people used mixins to uh, make other components in their application these entry points for data, for sideways data from Flux store. So do you guys consider the flow of data from a top-level component down through child components to be what people or the key point of one-way data flow versus the flow of data through, like, flux through action creators, dispatchers, uh, stores, and then into render. Yeah, so basically uh, what I think happens is that uh, you can just, uh, both are one-way data flow, but with flux, uh, you add more predictability to it because instead of having some root component that updates the state uh, in response to callbacks, you move that logic uh, into a separate place outside the component and you describe every mutation as an object, as an action. So it is possible to record and play them, for example, or to log every mutation. And that will be harder with callbacks. So Flux is just uh, making this pattern more uh, predictable. So do you consider Flux to be basically an extension of how React by itself as a view library works? Or is Flux an entire React by itself is one-way data flow and Flux just canonizes it a bit more, adds a little bit more ceremony um, and uh, structure to it, or is it an entirely are they entirely two separate things? I don't know if that's if that question makes yeah, sense to you. I think I see what you mean. If you look at the websites for either React or Flux, they're going to talk a lot about unidirectional data flow, and they're slightly different in that in React it is very component specific what it's when it's talking about where the data flows. But I honestly I don't think it's all that different. At least in my head, when I'm modeling it in my head, to me it's an extension of the entire flow of data as it moves throughout your application. You're, the data moves from, you know, an owner component down to its children, and then a children might fire an action, and then the action goes to the dispatcher, then to the store, and then back to the component. To me, it's all part of the same unidirectional data flow. Um, so I don't see them as two separate things. You kind of see React by itself as sort of a mini flux? Well, uh, I wouldn't say that. I, I would add that um, if you saw recent tweets by Sebastian Magbech, who is uh, like one of the uh, masterminds behind React, I think he's a little disappointed uh, with everyone having to use Flux, and he sees it as, as a shortcoming of React state model. So perhaps in the future, Who's React this? will... Uh, Sebastian Magbech. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, sorry, I, I'm not sure how to pronounce his surname. So I think, I think that's right. I put that tweet in that document as well. Yeah. 
So, Joe, I think I, I know where you're coming from with this, because basically when React came out, but before Flux was really being talked about, no one really talked about one-way data flow. That wasn't really in the vernacular that I observed anyway. And so Flux came out and everyone started talking about one-way data flow and how it was great and stuff. Now, one thing that people did say early on with React was two-way binding is not part of React. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's all one-way bindings. You would hear that. But one-way data flow, the term really came out when Flux came out. And what I've been seeing is that the concept of one-way data flow has leaked out of Flux and back into your component architecture in React applications themselves, and it really permeates every part of the app, not just how you pass data between dispatchers and stores and views, but also how your components themselves receive their data and send data around is all one way as well. So I think that's probably why you're wondering, because you haven't really heard it in the context of the React component model itself. Does that right. sound right? Yeah. Well, and another piece of this is the idea of one-way data flows in a simple explanation that makes sense to people that haven't been dealing with React is challenging, to say the least. And I deal with a lot of people who work with Angular and trying to explain yeah. to them what the difference is, what one-way data flow truly is and how mm -hmm. it's different. Yeah. But in my mind, I'm always thinking about the circle. Uh, you know, I've got experience with Elm as well as uh, Angular and a little bit with React. In my mind, it's always the circle of a change moves over to some, you know, action action creator, dispatcher, store, or whatever the flow is based on the framework you're using. If it's Redux, it's different. You got reducers. If it's Elm, it's different. But that flow of data. So I'm trying to explain that. And that's actually a fairly difficult concept to explain to somebody that's never... I mean, Dave Smith, you actually had the most awesome slide at React Rally explaining your version of Flux in your uh, sprinkler system. Oh, boy. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to ask you to talk about that. You mean where I just like deleted 80% of the boxes and said, this is what I do. Yeah, where it's like, <laughs> Flux is not a library, it's a pattern. And, and I don't know, you, you had a, an interesting way of pointing out your impressions well, of Flux. And if anybody hasn't seen that talk, you must see that talk. Yeah. The best <laughs> talk this year. You should ask the uh, React Rally organizers when it's going to be posted online. <laughs> Soon. <laughs> anyway, know that if you do see that talk, it might even be out by the time you get this. I don't know. No pressure. Uh, Jameson, but it, basically, you got to keep in mind it was a joke. <laughs> the whole talk was a joke. <laughs> so just that's all I'm going to say about it. Anyway, I think there's, I mean, there's a kernel of truth in some jokes, though. Like my impression of the talk was really, really funny, but I think there's some truth to your your like implicit criticism that flux can seem like just a bag of words, and like if you have done MVC for a long time, there's a really explicit place to put everything. And you have a lot of ingrained training. And when Even you take that, agrees, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I guess the, the explicit place is like where the framework that you use says to put it. But with Flux, there's so many different frameworks that even though they share common ideas, I still found for a long time, like I would sit down to write an app and be like, but how I've read that diagram a thousand times. I see the little square that it makes. And like, what code do I actually type to make it work? You know? Yeah. So Dan and Andrew, what do you say yeah. to people when they say, I just can't get this in my head? I'm not having a hard time conceptualizing. Well, I totally agree with everything you just said. I remember the first React app I ever made, it's also the first Flux app I ever made, was terrible. It was the worst code ever. I shudder to, I mean, the app ended up being not so bad, but the, the awful. And it made me, it almost made me not want to do React. I mean, I like, I liked React itself so much that I kept pushing forward but i i agree and i think one of the reasons why there have there were and there have been so many flux frameworks just an explosion of libraries every day there's a new 
pun on flux and a new library to go along with it. I think one of the reasons is just that it is just like a bag of concepts and there wasn't a lot of clarity over how to put all these ideas into a coherent framework. No, nobody was sure what's important and what's not. Right. If you look back, there was a talk at ReactConf in February where they had Bill Fisher. He's, I believe he was the moderator. He's one of the guys, like the creators of Flux. He had a panel with like six or seven people from different companies. Some of them were different people from face, internal to Facebook. And each person was describing how they do Flux on their team. And they were just totally different. Everybody had a different <laughs> way of doing it. Some people were doing data fetching inside of the stores. Some people were saying that's ridiculous that we don't do that at all. We do all data fetching the action creators. So I remember watching that and going, this is kind of bananas. That was kind of my, what one of the motivations behind when I made uh, this Flux library called Flummox was I was trying to distill down all of these weird, crazy concepts and find, okay, what's actually important? (laughs) What can we get rid of? What can we abstract away from the user? And just try and find an API in a library that kind of, that uh, got rid of all this this extraneous stuff and really focused on what was actually important. So I think I got pretty close with Flummox, made us some mistakes. Redux, I don't know how much you guys talked about Redux with Dan on the last podcast, but uh, I think Redux is kind of, if you've noticed, there haven't been that many Flux frameworks since Redux. Uh, I jokingly call it the, the Flux framework to end Flux frameworks. I really think it's like, it's the last one of this kind of this family that I can foresee existing. The the next library that replaces whatever is going to be something substantially different, I think. Uh, because I really do think that Redux is the essence of what is what we were searching for for that, for that year and a half with, with all the upstarts and the different failed libraries and all of that. Yeah, so there's, think we'll see a convergence on Redux? I think there already has been. Dan, don't, don't you think so? Yeah, I suppose. I mean, um, uh, of course, it doesn't do things uh, like Relay does, but uh, that wasn't the point. Uh, but for what it can do, what most Flux libraries can do, yeah, I think there has been some convergence. I'm actually super surprised by it because I didn't expect that to happen. I only uh, did this library for my talk, and it was growing like crazy. Yeah, so if anyone who's learning Flux today, if you want to learn Flux, don't read about the dispatcher. Don't look at those diagrams with all the 50 boxes on it. Just go read the Redux docs because the, that, that explains to you what's actually important about Flux and what is actually valuable about it without kind of confusing you with a bunch of concepts which either are relevant now, like the dispatcher, or just are kind of a distraction. So this actually closely relates to a question I had. I read an, an article or a blog post that somebody wrote about Flux, and they kind of talked through the lessons that they learned. And they said as they first learned Flux, a couple of big questions immediately came up at them as they started trying to write a real production app. And they were things, uh, the two examples I can think of off the top of my head was, can stores make Ajax calls and can dispatchers access state? And I'm pretty sure I got the questions right, but even if I don't exactly have them right. Does Redux eliminate some of this ambiguity that exists in Flux? Yes, it does. It's interesting because Redux limits you in a way because it, but it removes the dispatcher and prevents you from making manual it just totally prevents you from making manual updates to the store because you don't really have access to the store. You express everything in terms of these uh, reducer functions, which uh, if you don't know what that is, it's the function that takes a previous value or it takes an accumulated value and a new value and it returns a new accumulated value. If you do array.reduce, then you know you know what a reducing function is. So because it imposes those kinds of limits on you, 
it's impossible to do an Ajax call from a store. Uh, you just you just can't. There's no way to do it in Redux. Um, you have to do it, and there is no dispatcher, so you can't access data from the dispatcher. You have to do it in uh, an action creator or uh, into something that is dispatching an action. So that's that's a really beautiful thing about Redux is it removes these kind of questions in your head. You're like, oh, I can't, I can't do that. So uh, and it guides you toward a more uh, a solution that will probably lead to better success. So are you guys aware, besides just the democratic process, of anyone who's trying to close what I would call a documentation gap on Flux? Because right now we have lots of competing libraries. I mean, you yourselves just said, if you use Flux, just ignore these parts of the documentation. You'll be great. You know, like, is anybody working on this problem to say, you know what, we need, like, not necessarily like a grand unified Flux, but something so that people can jump into Flux and actually do it right and have success without having to like trim parts of documentation or just know people who know the right things. Well, well that's why we made Redux, right? It has the yeah. documentation, like a lot of it. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it has excellent documentation. I really tried to, um, when I was working on the docs for Redux, I really tried to um, not just describe the API because the API is small. I wanted to dive into some specific questions that pop up in your head as you try to implement a Flux application. So if you go through Redux docs, you have a pretty good idea of what to do and what not to do. Yeah, and another thing I'll say is that when I said earlier that just ignore these parts of the docs, I don't mean that because just don't worry about it. It'll take care of itself. It's more that, you know, Redux has shown that like a lot of these concepts that were thrown around at the beginning about the dispatcher um, and all this other crazy stuff, it's not, re it's not necessary. It, when you use Reddit, Redux, it's not that you're just ignoring the dispatcher. There literally is no dispatcher. So if you go through, and I know we might be a little myopic here, but I really do think that if you read through the Redux docs, there are tons of really cool example projects around it too. You'll get a few full view of Flux, even if you don't necessarily learn about the dispatcher, because we've learned at this point that you don't really need a dispatcher. It's not necessary. We can we can talk about why, but that that's kind of a relic. We we don't need that anymore. Yeah, and I wanted to add because <laughs> I always have to put this disclaimer: is that Redux uh, architecture is a, a really similar, except for some. Uh, uh, for some parts to Elm architecture. And this mm -hmm. is kind of a tricky part because, uh, when I was initially working on Redux, I think I've read Elm architecture document, but I didn't fully understand it because of the Elm syntax and the first version of Redux was not quite like Elm architecture. But later, actually, Andrew Clark wrote a gist, uh, explaining how, uh, I, I don't need the dispatcher. Uh, and uh, that I can do reduce the composition to the full. Uh, and uh, now Redux architecture is a lot similar to Elm. So uh, if you're interested in how to uh, make really uh, cool abstractions with it, really cool reusable uh, parts, uh, then you should read Elm architecture document, even if you don't understand Elm, because that's just a huge learning experience. So I'd like to uh, get your thoughts on Elm. I actually haven't used it. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I've meant to use it for so many times. I even installed it, but I was always distracted <laughs> by some issues of pull requests and I never got uh, around to actually fooling around with it. But I really like, uh, the architecture and the libraries for it. For example, the, uh, Redux undo library, which may, which lets you implement easily undo redo for your, uh, Redux uh, reducers was inspired by Elm to undo redo uh, library. So uh, there's a lot of cool stuff there. Uh, even if you don't plan to use it, you should check it out. 
Yeah, I'm kind of in the same boat. I think Elm is super cool. I haven't actually used it, though. <laughs> kind of hard to find a... I, I need to find like a side project or something because I can't exactly use it at work. Uh, I think it's really exciting. I've never really used a fully functional language like Clojure or, uh, or something like that for any kind of significant project. I've always just kind of dabbled in it. Most of my functional program experience, or if you can call it that, has honestly just been like writing Redux code or writing pseudo functional code uh, in JavaScript. But Elm is basically exactly like in the area of the type of language I would want to use if I got to choose today. Yeah, I, th I think there is a um, there is a kind of point in JavaScript where you kind of start to feel weird about writing true functional code and you yeah, yeah. Uh, back off. So Redux is like uh, Elm architecture until the point where it gets kind of weird in JavaScript. You can't do everything that Elm can do in JavaScript alone because you just don't, you don't have, you know, types. You don't have these guarantees that Elm has that makes the experience, you, you know, go to the next level. So there's, there's a limit to what you can do functional programming-wise in just JavaScript. But uh, I think Redux gets pre uh, a lot of that stuff. It gets you really close without actually 100% uh, getting you there. So... We touched on this issue a little bit of kind of making patterns explicit in frameworks um, where the ideas of Flux were out there and people were talking about them and everyone kind of had a different approach to how they did it in practice. Uh, I was watching this talk that Tom Dale did at TXJS and he was talking about Ember, obviously, but one of the things that he mentioned was that Ember tries really hard to make things really clear to developers where this is how you do a certain thing. And that they believe that developers are more productive when they're not figuring out how to do these basic underlying architectural things. They just want to build stuff, you know. Uh, so if, if you have to invent your own framework for managing data, it's time you're not spending working on features or refactoring code or writing tests or whatever. It seems like the approach in the React land is kind of the opposite, where it's like, let a thousand flowers bloom. Do you think that's a, a weakness of the React community or is it just a trade-off? It's just too early. I mean, uh, React uh, has changed how we interact with the DOM. So obviously, other things like interacting with the data are going to change too. And we still have, we haven't completely figured it out yet. So it's normal. It's just age thing. I come back in five years and it'll be uh, already. <laughs> yeah, I think that's part of it. I think another part of it is if you want to, there are two ways to accomplish. I haven't seen that talk, by the way, by Tom Dale, but it's definitely true that React and Ember are kind it's of. It's a really good talk. You should check it out. I sh I, I, I'll definitely check it out. It's definitely true that Ember and React sit at opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of telling developers uh, how to accomplish things. But I think there are, if your goal is making things straightforward and simple for the developer, there's two ways to do that. One is to have a bunch of conventions and frameworks and libraries and API calls for uh, for how to do very specific things, which I'm, that might be an exaggeration. I'm not saying that's exactly what Ember does. So just solving it by adding more API and more conventions. And the other way to do it is just to make your API really, really simple and straightforward and finding the right abstractions to problems and letting people build on top of that. So there's a really cool talk, and I know Dan's a, a favor of this talk too, that uh, Sebastian Markovich gave at, I think it was like... Minimal API Surface. Yeah, it's called Minimal API Surface Area. I, I think that's the title of it. I can't remember yeah. what conference yeah. it's from. Where he talks about how the React team has really taken kind of an opposite approach where they try and get rid of APIs. They try and simplify APIs and get rid of the ones that aren't working and try and find the most ideal, uh, smallest API surface area possible. One example of this is, you know, they haven't gotten rid of React.CreateClass 
but they've de-emphasized, they're de-emphasizing it more recently. They haven't gotten rid of mixins, um, but they're pushing higher order components, which is really just a, a function that returns a component. So it's not really a new API. They're pushing that as a pattern instead of mixins. They're making things simpler as they get toward 1.0 rather than adding more and more cruft. It makes some things, yeah, it make, does mean that maybe sometimes you have to do a little bit more extra work yourself, but it also allows the right abstractions to emerge in the community, and it makes it easier for people to innovate on top of a really solid core with projects like React Router or Redux or what have you. Yeah, I, I just wanted to add, and this is a common sentiment that React forces you to actually learn JavaScript. And I'm not saying that as a bad thing towards Ember or Angular, because uh, that, that, that's not what I mean. But uh, I think React actually forced me to properly learn JavaScript because uh, I don't have these uh, million convenient APIs I can call like jQuery, but I have to actually structure my application and think about it. But once I get past uh, this stage, uh, I feel much more powerful. So it's like Leon, uh, React uh, teaches you how to fish instead of giving you the fish, if it makes sense. Now you just made me hungry. <laughs> <laughs> This is more for people who, I guess, are like first trying to get started with React and Flux. You know, everyone talks about React and Flux being more functional, and it is more functional, but you can still use ES6 classes in it. So we kind of talked about this a little bit, but for people getting started, would you advise they try to stick to, you know, as much functional concepts as possible or start with classes? I would. I would tell people to not to use classes, but I might be wrong. We we have some new team members on my team right now, and I don't know if you know this, but in the next version of React, there's a release candidate out now. You can actually just use the stateless... I'm sure you guys talked about this <laughs> in the last pockets, but you can use uh, just pure function stateless components, uh, which don't even have classes. It's just a function that maps some props to React elements. In the code I've been writing, in the code I've been pushing some of my like teammates to write, I write, I start and I write, try and write everything with those pure function components. And if I need to use set state or if I need to use a lifecycle method, for instance, because that's another reason you want to use a class, I try and extract that into a higher order component and then wrap my pure function with it. This goes back to this idea of separating between dumb components and smart components. Dan wrote a really good article about that. It's a concept in React where you try and put your stateful stuff and your, uh, a lot of your logic inside of these, inside of your smart components, and then those components just render these dumb components, which really just are about, um, you know, they're your leaf nodes. They're just rendering straight to the DOM. So yeah, I tried my best to avoid ever using set state or classes or lifecycle hooks. And if and the cases where I do need to use them, I try and write some sort of abstraction around it and uh, use higher order components. Dan, what about you? Yeah, if I can clarify this a little bit, I would say that uh, I, I do use classes, but only for React components when I need lifecycle methods and stuff like that. You can't really get around it right now. There are uh, proposals for uh, classless module-style components, but these are just proposals. You can find them in a React Future repo. You should Google it. It's really cool. There is all sorts of stuff that we'll probably never see the light of day, but it's really interesting to read about. But if you're talking about... Uh, like, should I use classes in my regular JavaScript code? I would say no. I haven't written a class for ages, and I feel just fine, and I feel better than if I was using classes. 
So, uh, yeah, classes are, are often requested feature in JavaScript. Okay, we have it, but I don't really think uh, it buys me much uh, in terms of application logic because my models are plain objects. My uh, transformations of models are pure functions. So the only use for classes I have is for React components that have like psychomatics. And I don't think it's evil to use class in this case because you're not actually creating them or doing something with them. It's just a way to express a component that has lifecycle hooks. So I don't think it's a problem to use class in this case. I don't really understand why people uh, go to uh, like uh, extra lengths to avoid using classes uh, in this case. I think it's fine. Just don't inherit, don't use inheritance. Don't uh, create uh, class hierarchies. That's uh, the, the biggest problem with classes. And uh, yeah, and one more thing I'll say is that I don't use classes in my normal JavaScript either anymore. But I think when you're using React, one of the weird kind of aw more awkward things about it is you've got this functionally inspired library, but then you've got this object-oriented state API with set state, uh, and you've got you've got this kind of littered everywhere. Sometimes it does feel like a little bit of an amalgam of two separate. It, it feels like this weird marriage between two conflicting ideas. I think part of that if you listen to the React authors and maintainers, is just them compromising and realizing that in the interest of friendliness to the wider JavaScript community, they've made a few compromises and given a more friendly uh, object-oriented API in some cases to everybody. But I think going forward in the future, you're going to see those, you'll probably see this uh, kind of awkward object-oriented APIs shed and we'll get to a more functional uh, future. The biggest example of that so far is mixins are now not favored anymore in favor of uh, using composition and higher order components. And I, th I think that if you look at that React Future repo, we're only going to go more and more in that direction. Yeah, I think uh, in many ways, uh, uh, sorry uh, for interrupting you, I, I just want to say in many ways, uh, it's like uh, their uh, React is like a Trojan horse for functional programming in JavaScript. Yes, exactly. And that's interesting because I know that when we were when Redux was like kind of young, we had a lot of discussions on GitHub and on elsewhere talking about how far do we go with these functional concepts? Are we going to scare everybody off if we use reducers instead of stores? And at one point, the, what we now call reducers, we were calling stores just for friendliness for people who are used to other Flux libraries. And eventually, we, I think for the most part, we realized, hey, you know, we're just going to call it, we're going to use whatever API feels most natural to us. And people will pick up if we document it well and explain it well, and it's a good API. And I, it's worked out really well for Redux. And um, I think as React moves in that same kind of functional direction, uh, people are going to pick up on it fast, and it's going to make them better programmers. It's made me a better programmer as I've thought about these stuff with this stuff with Redux. Amy, what were you saying? Oh, I was just going to say, I like I agree. You know, I have not done very much with React, but with what I do on the front end with Angular, I just, I don't know. I think I was excited to see classes in JavaScript, but the more that I've dealt with them in ES6, the more eh, they're really not that great. <laughs> it is better than if you're going to like manually copy things over to like an object prototype and do all that type of stuff. So it yeah. is better than something, but it's not better in my opinion than just going full, just using functions and using per functions whenever possible. Yeah, I agree. At least they're classy. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody <laughs> had to go there, right? <laughs> so, the future of Flux. No, wait. Where Flux falls short. Let's talk about that. In what ways do you guys think Flux is weak? Uh, okay, so I wrote a few things down. I think Flux is... So I've written several Flux apps now. 
Uh, I've written two apps, or one and a half, I guess, because we're still in the middle of another one. I've written two apps in Redux. I wrote that really terrible, horrible initial, ver <laughs> that first app I wrote with like just the normal f trying to make my own Flux library solution. So I've made a bunch of Flux apps, and what I've found, even with Redux, is that it's really good at synchronous stuff, but async stuff can still get pretty messy unless you go full reactive and you start using something like RxJS. Just because async stuff is just inherently more complex, data fetching with Flux, is which, was, which is what a lot of people use it for, is good. It's good. It's way better in Redux than it ever was in Flumix or any other library I used. But it's still very imperative and complex. I'm at a point now where w when I'm working on an app, most of my time debugging or you know the, trying to figure out a problem with my code is not spent in React itself. I, I'm at the point now where React does basically exactly what I want it to. I, I rarely am confused by React itself. It's always something with data fetching or caching or pagination or something like that. So even with a really good Flux app, data fetching is still pretty complex. And there are other solutions that out there, maybe they are yet to exist, that I think can do data fetching uh, and async stuff in general in a much better way. The other point, which Dan brought up earlier, is that the one downside to moving some of your state into f these fl global-ish flux stores is that now your your state isn't... If, if you're putting component state inside of a flux store, now you got your state in like two separate places and maybe you've got like three different files, like an action creators file and a store file and a component file, and it just makes it a lot harder to follow what's going on. I noticed that we, we kind of went overboard in this current project we're doing with moving stuff into, into um, reducers and, and into, into Redux, where sometimes you just... Sometimes, yes, set state is a little gross, but it is a lot more convenient when you're just trying to get a feature to work than having to make like three separate files. So that's that's what I believe Sebastian Markbitch was talking about on Twitter. But as part of it is just a f exposing a failure of React right now. Maybe not a failure of React, that's really harsh. Maybe a shortcoming of React right now where the state model or the state architecture could be a little bit better. Uh, if I can add... Um my complaint about the original Flux uh, is that it's so hard to reuse the store logic across different stores. So, for example, if you have pagination and you have uh, 10 different stores that all want to paginate, but in response to different actions, and they have some kind of optimistic updates that are unique to each store, it's really hard to reuse that logic. Uh, I have a project called Flux uh, React Router example, and it has pagination there, and I think nobody really understands what's happening there, and I don't understand either. So this is something that I wanted to solve in Redux, and I think uh, it actually provides a good solution uh, in terms of uh, you have these uh, reducers, which are just functions, and that means that you can create functions that create functions. And uh, there's uh, an example in Redux called real world example that shows how you can create uh, a reducer factory. Sorry for using the word factory. <laughs> how you can create a reducer factory that implements pagination and then reuse it uh, in different places of your uh, reducer tree. So uh, some things that were harder to reuse in Flux, they can actually be uh, libraries in Redux. Another example is uh, undo redo, which is uh, there is a library called Redux undo, which works with any Redux application. You just plug it in and you have undo redo for free. So this is something that was bugging me in original Flux, but it, I think Redux solves it. But I, I agree that async is uh, brittle, it's kind of hard to do, which is why Redux actually doesn't have any async solution. You are supposed to 
do it yourself. And I think if you have complex async uh, APIs and complex AC- async dependencies, you should use something like Rx or I've seen uh, J- James Long using channels. Uh, you just use whatever abstraction that makes sense for you and you feed it into Redux. And this is why Redux has a concept of middleware, which is your custom stuff that runs uh, between dispatching an action and the uh, time that, where action comes into reducer. Yeah, that's another really nice thing about Redux and it's, it's highly expensive just because everything is a pure function. So it's really easy to compose functions and to create functions that return other functions, as Dan said. And the uh, the evidence for that being an effective approach is in just how many, there are just so many Redux third-party or Userland Redux extensions out there. Uh, it's really cool. Uh, but I wanted to add that, of course, another really big problem with Flux and Redux is uh, lack of declarative uh, data fetching, which is what, exactly what really uh, has to solve. So anytime you move a component uh, that depends on some data across the component tree somewhere else, you have to change all these places where you call action creators to actually fetch the data. And uh, this was the biggest uh, issue for me with Flux, I think, because it was just so frustrating to change that all the time and to avoid, avoid underfetching and overfetching. But it depends on your app, because if you make something as complex as Facebook, yeah, definitely you need declarative data fetching. But if your app is uh, relatively simple or if you don't rely on server as much and most of your meetings are local, like a complex uh, post editor or whatever, then probably Redux is not such a bad idea. Yeah, and actually at, at OpenGov right now, we're working on a new app and uh, we're only like two and a half sprints into it. Uh, we started full Redux, but now we're, we're it's like a medium-ish sized app. And I don't mean the website medium, I just mean the size medium. <laughs> no, and, no, thanks for the clarification. <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> I noticed that immediately. Um, yeah, so it's it's a moderately how about that? It's a moderately sized app, but not, we are to be confused with moderately.com. But go, <laughs> but go ahead. <laughs> right. Okay, so it's an app that's a little bit bigger than small. And we we already have like tons of action creators and reducers and Redux has worked out really well so far, but we've been experimenting with using something like Relay or maybe Falcor for doing just the data fetching part. So I've I've been working on that this sprint. And uh, right now we're in like this hybrid Redux and Relay state, and it's actually like it's actually working really well. Relay is really good at data fetching. There are a few areas of our app where we're doing some complex local stuff that uh, you can't really use Relay for, at least for right now. Uh, and Redux is working really well there. And I mean, the nice thing about React is it's really easy to mix and match these types of approaches for different parts of the application because everything is nice and organized into these components. So I'm really excited about uh, the pen- potential for Relay, but uh, we're also still, we're not, we haven't abandoned Redux by any means. I really wonder what a legacy React code is going to look in five years. Like, are, are we going to look at the, the mess we wrote and think like, oh my God, that, that was horrible. <laughs> I look at what I wrote yesterday and I think, oh my God, that's horrible. <laughs> I mean, think of, think of your backbone code today, right? Backbone code now is probably yeah. legacy code. We, we hope, <laughs> we can only hope that our code today, five years from now, it looks terrible to us. Yeah, that'd be that'd great. Be- that'd be a horrible future if we're still writing the exact same code as we're writing today. We figured it out. <laughs> so do you guys see a future where people can use relay type semantics on the front end without having a relay backend? And by, oh, yeah. by semantics, I don't mean necessarily the query language, but just like the ability to easily pass data into your components without, you know, having to go through a bunch of sit-ups. Oh, yeah, I totally think that that's I know that the relay team is actively working on that. Um, I went to a meetup 
thing at Facebook a few weeks ago, and I was asking them about this exact question. Uh, I asked them, how is, well, actually, the question I asked them first was, how is, you know, Relay changed the way that you write Flux? Because I just assumed that they still write a bunch of Flux. And they still do, it seems like, but they're moving toward, they're trying to move towards a future in which they can describe all of their data updates and dependencies, uh, whether it's local or on the server as GraphQL queries or, or in terms of Relay. So whether it's Relay or something very similar to it, I definitely think there's a lot of potential for uh, declaring your data dependencies. And mutations. And mutations using something like GraphQL versus having to, you know, even with Redux, you're still imperatively giving the steps of what needs to happen in order for this thing to update and how to, and all that. So yes, is my answer, I guess. <laughs> Good. Dan, do you have any experience with Falcor? Because I feel like we should talk about Falcor as well, but I don't know quite as much about it as I do with Relay. No, uh, the problem is that right now I'm not working on any application. Uh, so I really have been out of touch of everything. Like you, you wouldn't use Falcor if you're writing a library. So because right. I'm writing just libraries right now, I have no idea what's happening. I haven't checked out Relay yet. I haven't checked out Falcor. I'm just the most clueless man in the world. <laughs> well, we're all grateful for your cluelessness because <laughs> yes. uh, we use those libraries. Would it be fair to call you a librarian? <laughs> <laughs> I think that Substack, what's his, James Halliday, isn't that like part of his Twitter handle? Someone has a Twitter handle like that. Oh, yeah, maybe. <laughs> Twitter description. Yeah, I, I think one shouldn't uh, spend too much time doing that because it really puts you out of touch with the world. Uh, you just sit in your library cave and do your own thing while everybody's moving on to something more modern. So I think you should write an application, solve some specific business needs, and then realize, okay, I'm doing it wrong, I need to write a library, write a library, make everyone happy, and then jump back into developing applications. You have yeah, you, you need to switch. You wish you could jump back, and then all the users yeah. come and say, fix this, change that. Yeah. yeah. That's, what, uh, that's what DHH says, right? He says that good frameworks come out of use cases, not out of people just sitting in caves thinking about them. Yeah, exactly. And I think this is why it's really important that you limit your scope. And this is something I tried to do with Redux. And I think this is the one place where I actually succeeded in that, in that I really wanted to finish Redux. Like I really wanted it to be done at some point. And I think we are pretty much close to that. The only thing that I find lacking right now is the lack of support for flow, static typing. But after we get that, I think it's pretty much done. And that's important because if it's never done, then you will be out of touch at some point. Yeah, I would consider Redux essentially done. Flow support would be cool. But honestly, if you write a Redux, the thing I think is really cool about Redux is um, it's done today for the most part. And the docs are a huge part of that. Honestly, I think the docs might be more valuable than the actual code itself because the code <laughs> itself is like, what was it, like 60 lines, Dan, something like that? Yeah, I, I removed the comments and sent it to checks and it was 99 lines. What? Yeah, <laughs> so the code itself is, I encourage everybody to go and read through it because it's incredibly simple. It probably seems like it must be many lines just because of the number of stars it has on GitHub. But yeah, Redux <laughs> in its current form basically existed like four months ago for the most part, like you, you could use the 1.0 version of, or 
yeah, the 1.0 version of Redux or even slightly before that with some of our like alphas and betas and stuff. And it's basically the exact same library minus a few like developer conveniences and stuff like that. Almost all the work that Dan does on Redux and that other people do on Redux nowadays is responding to issues, updating docs, creating new examples. Like it's an incredibly minimal library. It has to have broken some sort of record for ratio of lines to code to number of stars to <laughs> link that it's existed it's it's really quite phenomenal that is although i guess when the original flux library had zero lines of code so you know that's true <laughs> well the dispatcher though the dispatcher is larger than the entire Redux, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's why you didn't put the dispatcher in there yeah yeah we have i have a hundred line budget guys i can't put a dispatcher in this <laughs> yeah another thing is like in that hundred lines that dan's talking about it also includes stuff that isn't necessarily i don't know core redux like yeah apply middleware is pretty fundamental to redux but if you look at just like the the core api of, of redux it's probably something I remember mocking it at one point in like a test or something for a library I was writing. It's more like like 20 lines, really, <laughs> really. Uh, it's it's really, really, really tiny. Yeah, it's just marketing. It's all marketing. And the docs. <laughs> and the docs. We really should have just read it out loud for this episode. I don't know why we bothered. Yeah, that, that might have been more valuable. <laughs> a dramatic reading even. <laughs> Open curly brace. <laughs> I, think, I think it's a bit underrated. I mean, um. I'm not a fan of a line contest where you brag about how, how tiny your library is. But I think the minimal API surface area is what is important because it lets people build stuff on top of your stuff. And if you have a lot of stuff built in, then it's going to rot at some point and uh, people are going to have better solutions, but they're not in your library. So what we try to do with Redux is what is the minimal API and minimal implementation we need to uh, encourage people to build uh, their own stuff on top of it, and it's still be powerful for uh, developer tools, uh, hot reloading. These all should just work, but need to be outside. Yeah, if you really, if you look at the trajectory of Redux from its initial versions to now, it's really about re been removing things because there was a point when like hot reloading was kind of built into Redux. Um, having multiple reducers that combined together was built into Redux. There was like a pseudo dispatcher thing with middleware that was built into Redux. So, uh, Redux Thunk, which is now a third party or is now an external, a separate project that was at one point built into Redux. There are other examples of stuff like that where we realized, you know, if we can design an API in such a way that we can move this stuff outside of the core of the Redux project, then that's, you know, if we can implement these core extensions as uh, outside of the core, then it means that anybody can will have the ability to write these really cool this, these really cool things. So that it's it's taught me a lot about good API design. It's I think a really good example of in the wild of Sebastian Markovich's talk about reducing API surface area, and it's made me a better programmer and when I write libraries a better API designer. Yeah, that. and actually, sorry, uh, I just want to give huge props to Andrew because he actually came up with uh, the middleware design we have. So this is his great. It was a it was a group effort. It was a lot of back and forth. And uh, the other the other big one, which we don't talk about as much in the docs, is the store enhancer pattern, which we use for the dev tools. That was really cool, and it's one of those instances where that API might not exist the way it does if the dev tools weren't a thing that Dan was actively working on. So that's another yeah, one that I'm really I, I proud of. to write an article about that because that's really uh, interesting pattern that people overlook. Because most people just don't look into DevTools. Uh, they're too mysterious. But this pattern is really interesting. I, I need to write about that. Yeah, so I, 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 I want to push back a little bit. You've been talking for a long time about the amazing yeah, benefits <laughs> of keeping the core so small. 
And all I hear over and over again is look at how many decisions you have to make now to use it. Like it's a two-edged sword, right? It, it enabled you to keep the core small and to build a really clean, powerful API. But instead of using a, a framework, now I have to use a library and, and grab all these little pieces together. And those are things I have to know about. I have to know how they work together and I have to configure them myself. And I, I don't think it's as clean cut of, a, of an unadulterated good as you make it out to be. Like there, there is a, a cost to it. That is it's, it's not just like, look how small our code is. We're amazing. It's, it's <laughs> someone has to write the other code that's not there. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And Dan and I are probably biased a bit because we are so intimately familiar with Redux that, and we want to be able to extend it and then whatever, I want to be able to do whatever crazy thing that I want to do with it. We're biased because we know exactly how it works, right? And not everybody's going to have the time to read the, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's only a hundred lines, but not everyone's going to have the time to learn all these things about it. And there is a cost to having all these different modules and you got to NPM install 15 things just to get a basic example working. And that's not fair. I mean, it's well, just I know, I know. packages. Come on. <laughs> I, I agree. I agree with Dan. I'm still on your side. Uh, but yeah, th there is a cost. We can't pretend that, that it doesn't exist. But look, like you could make a Redux wrapper or some project that bundles up like common middleware into a single middleware and bundles up some common extensions. It'd be really easy to make something like that. And if that were valuable, honestly, I think it would probably exist already. But, you know, if, that, if you think that's a good idea, then yeah, come out with a Redux framework that has, you know, the uh, built-in promise middleware and thunk middleware and logger middleware and all that type of stuff. And it'd be totally really easily possible to make, to build that stuff on top of Redux. The difference is we're not building it directly into Redux. Because if we build that stuff directly into Redux, then the power users or anybody else is going to have to figure out ways to work around it. It's much easier to put stuff on top of a small core than have to rip out stuff from a really bloated, you know, complicated core. Uh, so, yeah, there is a trade-off. But I think the approach that we're taking uh, or that we have taken with Redux is generally better. Because if those things need to exist on top of it, then people will put things on top of it. I think sure. uh, it's sense. really similar to Webpack uh, and Browserify debate where people like, uh, I want to com customize everything or uh, I want a single tool that works. And it's kind of funny because I'm on the Webpack side. I actually like that I have a kitchen sink that uh, does everything for me. And uh, I guess this is because I don't want to customize Webpack, but I do want to customize Redux. So this is where I'm coming from. And I think a lot of Redux yeah, uh, users become power users really uh, fast because the API is small and they want to build uh, stuff on top of it. But with uh, something like Browserify, it's uh, more complex and it's unlikely you want to write your own plugin for your app. So this is why I don't want to learn uh, how to compose it with something else. Go look at the source for Redux Thunk. It's like eight lines <laughs> and it's a very useful extension. Are there any points that we should have touched on that we didn't? Um, let me just go over this document one more time. I feel like we, we touched a lot. Yeah, there's some like other historical stuff that is in here that isn't all that important. I've, I put it in here because I thought it was a little interesting. You know, like the relationship between flux and server-side rendering, perhaps, or how everything used to be singletons, but they're not. The idea of where the concept of replaying actions and recording actions came from. But I think we, we basically covered everything. All right, well, let's go ahead and get to picks then. Before we get to picks, I want to take some time to thank our silver sponsors. This episode is sponsored by TrackJS. Let's face it, errors cost you money, you lose customers, server resources, and time to them. Wouldn't it be nice if someone told you how and when they happened so you could fix them before they cost you big time? You may have this on your back-end application code, but what about your front-end JavaScript? It's time to check out TrackJS. 
It tracks errors and usage and helps you find bugs before your customers even report them. Go check them out at trackjs.com slash jsjabber. This episode is sponsored by CodeSchool. CodeSchool is an online learning destination for existing and aspiring developers that teach us through entertaining content. They provide immersive video lessons with in-browser challenges, which means that each course has a unique theme and storyline and feels much more like a game. Whether you've been programming for a long time or have only just begun, CodeSchool has something for everyone. You can master Ruby on Rails or JavaScript, as well as Git, HTML, CSS, and iOS. And more than a million people around the world use CodeSchool to improve their development skills by learning or doing. You can sign up at codeschool.com slash javascriptjabber. Once again, this episode was sponsored by Braintree. So go check them out at braintreepayments.com slash javascriptjabber. If you need any kind of credit card processing or payment processing in general, they're a great way to go, and we appreciate them sponsoring the show. Jameson, do you want to start us off with picks? I do. I have, let's see, how many picks do I have? I'll just do two picks today. Actually, I'll do three. My first pick is the Strange Loop videos. They have been posted online. Strange Loop is a magical place where the cutting edge of academic and industry come together. And it really feels like the future. Not everything at Strange Loop will become popular or widely used, but something is there that's going to take over. So I would encourage you to check out those videos. There's a really good talk on on Elm that came out. There's a couple other ones about some distributed system stuff. My next pick is this website called Types in the Future or Typeset in the Future. It looks at the typography of classic sci-fi movies. So there's a really good one on 2001 A Space Odyssey. They just kind of look at the fonts and how they are used to enhance the story. It's this, I'm not one of those like font nerds. Some people really geek out on like the difference between Arial and Helvetica. I can't tell the difference, but it was cool to see how much craft went into these little details that I only notice on the periphery kind of. Um, it's, it's really well written. And then my last one is this slide deck from a talk about how you can model building software internally for your company after an open source project. Yeah, those are my picks. All right. Dave, do you have some picks for us? You betcha. I have two picks. Uh, the first one is a video from a YouTuber whose name is Vsauce. And uh, he recently put out a video about a concept called Zipf's Law. It's hard to pronounce because it's spelled Z-I-P-F, Zipf, I guess. And And the law says that in any written body of text, you can order the words by frequency and take the most frequently used word, put it at the front. The second most frequently used word will be used half as much as that. And the third most frequently used word will be used one third as much as the most. And fourth, one fourth, fifth, one fifth, and so on all the way down, even down to like the tens of thousands, which I thought was really cool. Anyway, he's got a really entertaining style. Cool video. I'll post it in the show notes. My second pick is a talk from the recently concluded Utah JS conference, which is an annual conference held here in Utah by the organizers of the Utah JS meetup. And uh, it was the final talk by a guy named Will Conant, who talked about how he at his company is using Flux. And he had some really good real world questions and answers. And he shared how his team evolved using Flux from start to finish and how they resolved questions or answers to questions that they had at the beginning. And I really enjoyed it. So it should be posted online on the Utah JS website here uh, within a week or two. So look for that. Will Conant at Utah JS. So those are my picks. All right, Joe, what are your picks? My first pick is a series of books that I've been reading and I've actually picked them before and for some reason, I just got the urge to go back and reread them again. 
because they were so amazing. The first book is called Forging Zero, and it's a sci-fi series. There's three of them, and there's supposed to be a fourth coming out at some point. They're like some of the most amazing books I've ever read. So absolutely love them, and I highly recommend them if you're looking for some books to read. And my second pick is going to be a board game that I've been really enjoying for a long time, Camel Up, which is a game where you bet on a camel race. And it plays, the base game plays eight people. They just came out with an expansion that plays 10 people. And it still plays pretty quick. And it's really fun. And um, it's just one of those games that's like a classic. It's fairly easy to learn. Everybody has fun with it that plays. And crazy things happen. So it's a fantastic board game. And for my final pick, I'm going to pick the language Elm. Because I've really been digging it lately. All right, Amy, what are your picks? Okay. I have two. So my first one, I think this is an older talk, but uh, some mentor I've been working with recently told me to uh, watch it, and I thought it was pretty good. But it's by Gary Bernhardt, and it's called uh, Functional Core Imperative Shell. And so, you know, we've been talking a lot about React, but most of my day is Node and Angular. So I've been kind of trying to think of ways that I could write my code in this way um, in Angular. So uh, I, I don't know. I think it's older, but worth a watch. So that's my first pick. And then the second pick, I picked this uh, off and on, but uh, it's the November conference in November in Nashville, Tennessee. So I think they're pretty close to selling out tickets and they're still looking for sponsors. So go buy a ticket, and if you're interested in sponsoring, you can get the information for that on the website. There's a lot of really cool speakers speaking. I'm going, and I'm speaking, but Nashville's awesome. So if nothing else, go to go to Nashville. That's it for me. All right. I've got a couple of picks. I have gotten complaints about picking the same thing on multiple shows in the same week, but uh, this is what I've been doing today. So uh, we cut the cable to save some money. And anyway, when we were trying to figure some of the things out, my wife realized that not all of the TV shows that she wants to watch are on Netflix, Hulu, or uh, Amazon. So, are you about to pick piracy, Joe? All right, Chuck, I'm ready. I'm ready for you to pick just straight up pirating stuff. <laughs> are you going to go after me for it? No. Heck, no, heck I no. just want to grab some popcorn. So we went down to Lowe's and we bought an antenna. How Lame. disappointed are you? <laughs> <laughs> You're the lamest pirate ever. So, uh, is it a pirate antenna? Uh, if that makes you feel better. Does it say R? I feel better. I'll, I'll go hang the Jolly Roger from it after the show. Anyway, we bought one of the antennas. They look kind of like a piece of plastic, kind of a thicker, little thicker than a piece of paper. Um, about the same size. And we, we just weren't getting any channels at our house. Well, we got four channels and two of them were in Spanish and one of them was, uh, something weird. I don't remember what it was. So there was only like one channel that was even moderately interesting. <laughs> and so anyway, I had to look for quite a while and finally found if you're in the U S and you're looking for, uh, what TV channels you can get over the air with an antenna, uh, go to tvfool.com and look it up. Um, everybody tells you to go to antennaweb.org, I think. And the problem with them is that uh, they only listed the channels that I was getting. TV Fool said the channels that I could see that were, um, it, it color codes them. So green and yellow means that you can get them with the kind of antenna that I bought that you can get at Walmart or on Amazon. And then it had like 15 channels, which were all the channels that incidentally my wife wanted. There were about 15 channels that were in red. 
And those are the ones that you have to have the big directional antenna. It's the kind of antenna you're, you're thinking of, you know, that sits on your roof. And so we went up and we put that up there. We had canceled Dish Network, so we just took the coax off of the the dish and hooked it up to the antenna, and it worked great. And then we got a little signal amplifier or signal booster, at, and we bought both of those at Lowe's. The whole package cost about 100 bucks, but that's way cheaper than even a month's worth of our cable package before. Anyway, all that to say, uh, tvfool.com is my pick. And uh, I'll also pick the antenna that we got just because if you're looking. But most areas, I think in most urban areas, uh, you can actually just get one of those smaller antennas and you're fine. And then another pick, I've been using fiction to kind of unwind. And so I'm going to pick a book series. Uh, the latest book just came out in the Michael Vay book series by Richard Paul Evans. And so, yeah, I'm going to pick those because they're, they're just they're. So they're young adult books. I have to put this caveat on there. If you're looking for like some sophisticated fiction, this ain't it. But it's kind of fun fiction. And like I said, it's young adult. So the, the plot lines stay pretty clean and pretty direct. So anyway, I've enjoyed them. And the fifth book is Michael Vay and the Storm of Lightning or something like that. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Dan, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, sure. I have five picks, actually. Oh, wow. So... My first pick is going to be a Tumblr blog called Business Town, which uh, is described as an ongoing project attempting to explain our highly intangible, deeply disruptive, data-driven, venture-backed, gluten-free economic meritocracy (laughs) to the uninitiated. So it's really good. You should check it out. My second pick is... Um, uh, a, series, uh, a series of articles about um, Elon Musk companies. It's on weightbutwhy.com blog. It's really good blog. And I really like how uh, this guy, he approaches his article like with deep detail. So he wrote a bunch, of, a series of articles about Elon Musk companies, about SpaceX and Tesla. And he uh, goes into, like, what is energy and uh, what are fossil fuels and why are they running up and how is that related to dinosaurs and anything and when we'll go to Mars. So it's uh, I found it when I was sick and I think I spent the whole day in bed just reading each of them because the second article is actually split in five parts itself. So it's very good reading. I suggest uh, you go ahead and read it when you get time. My third pick is called Mostly Adequate uh, Guide, and it's a really good introduction to functional programming. So if any of you are interested in functional programming in JavaScript but can't really get into it, you should check out Mostly Adequate Guide. It's really uh, nicely written and it's very accessible to JavaScript developers. Uh, my fourth pick is a Wikipedia article called Abiogenesis, which is about the origin of life, about different hypotheses for the origin of life and the uh, common ancestor organism. It's very interesting. And finally, uh, my f- my final pick is React Future Repo, which is a collection of possible uh, ideas for uh, what React could look like in a few years. So it's not uh, all actionable. It's, it's not, some uh, most of it is probably not going to happen. But take a look to uh, get inspired. This is it. All right, Andrew. What are your picks? 
Okay, so I have, uh, let's see, four picks. The first is a book that I actually read 2012 when it came out, but it's a nonfiction book. I've picked it up a few times since just because it kind of, it left an impact on me, not in a spiritual way that sounded like a little hippy-dippy, but it, it <laughs> stayed with me. It's a book on moral psychology by a guy named Jonathan Haidt, I believe is how you pronounce his name. It's H-A-I-D-T, and it's called A Righteous Mind. I'm neglecting to remember this. It's the second part of it. But it's something like A Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. I believe that's what it is. And it's a very, very interesting book about uh, moral psychology and this theory about how our morals, uh, where our morals come from called moral foundations theory. It's a really interesting blend of kind of science and psychology, but also just being aware of uh, how we make our decisions. The core takeaway that I took from it, there, there are a lot of takeaways, but the core takeaway I, I got from it was that we tend to vastly overestimate the degree to which our decisions every day are based on rational are rationally decided. Uh, most of what we consider reason or rationality is a lot of post hoc justification for our initial intuition or our initial moral response to something. So it, it's really interesting. It might sound a little a little weird, and it definitely challenged some of my assumptions for how reasonable of a person I am. But it's it's very fascinating to me, and uh, something I always come back to whenever I encounter a heated political argument or a heated religious argument or any kind of Twitter flame war, Apple versus Google type of thing. It, it applies to a lot of things. So I really liked it, and uh, yeah, it's, it's, you should pick it up. Another one of my picks is uh, Lodash FP. It's basically just Lodash, but it's a wrapper around it so that you can, it switches to Lodash API so that the data comes first, or sorry, the data comes last and it's auto curried. So if you like Lodash, but you also like to do some functional programming, programming type stuff, it works really well with composing, uh, higher order components, for instance. Uh, I find I've, I've used it in, uh, in several areas. Uh, actually, one way I've used it is if you've ever written a GraphQL schema, which I've started to do, um, and you have a lot of repetitive resolve functions. And if you don't know GraphQL is, I'm sorry, but you have a resolve function that tells you how to, uh, go from, uh, the kind of the, parent node to uh, the field node. Uh, a lot of times it's just a simple accessor. You, you go from like parent dot or let's say uh, user equals parent dot user or yields parent dot user. So a really easy way to do that is just use the get method from or the get function from Lodash FP. Anyway, it's a cool, neat little library. Um, I'm a Lodash fan and I also like functional programming. So I've been using that lately and it's pretty lightweight. Another one of my picks that I'm probably three years late on this and everybody else has already seen it, but I just recently watched Inside Amy Schumer, which is a really funny sketch show. There are about a billion sketch shows nowadays, but I really liked this one. Um, she's really, really funny. I think they just won an Emmy for writing or something like that, and they won a Peabody or something earlier this year. Really funny sketch show. I really appreciated that it was a sketch show from a more female perspective because I personally don't think you see that very often or, or enough of that nowadays. Um, so, yeah, Amy Schumer, she's really hilarious. Uh, if you liked Trainwreck, which I actually haven't seen, uh, you might like Inside Amy, Amy Schumer. Another pick is Data Loader, which is a cool library from Facebook which they released like I don't know, two weeks ago or something like that. Uh, really simple library. Uh, basically what it does is it allows you to batch. It does batching of either network requests or database requests, um, any kind of data loading operation. It does batching and caching of those requests in a really simple, intuitive way. Uh, it works particularly, it's particularly ideal for constructing a GraphQL query 
a GraphQL schema, which is how I've been using it. I'm sure there are other uh, use cases for it, but it works really, really well for doing a GraphQL schema because a lot of times what you'll have in a GraphQL schema is you'll have a field that resolves to another field and that which resolves back to the same field. So there's like kind of a circular uh, graph dependency. Uh, and you don't want that to co- to cause two separate fetches. So if you use da- data loader, it's a really easy, simple way to ensure that if you do the same fetch twice, they'll get batched and you'll only end up with one fetch. And then my last pick is OpenGov, which is where I work. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to plug where I work, but we're hiring right now for all skill levels. If you really like JavaScript and React and Relay and Redux and Node, I think you'd uh, really like working here. I started here in, let's see, May and I've just had a really great time. We're in Redwood City, and uh, we're really we're about three years old. We have some apps for servicing uh, local and municipal and state governments. Uh, and we have some, they're cool apps that have to do with financial accounting, multi-fund accounting. Sound might sound like some boring stuff, but I'm really excited by it. We were servicing an industry that you know historically has not been really part of the whole tech revolution. So yeah, so if you have any JavaScript experience, we're particularly looking for senior guys, but junior guys or gals are totally welcome. Just shoot me a tweet on Twitter or uh, an email or just check out our website. All right. If people want to follow what you're working on or find you guys, uh, where where do they do that? So I'm on Twitter and on GitHub at ACDLite. It's a, yeah, it's a terrible screen name, but it's A-C-D-L-I-T-E. I'm probably going to switch it soon. I just can't think of anything to switch it to. And unfortunately, with a name like Andrew Clark, there aren't very many straightforward options. But yeah, you can find me both on Twitter and at GitHub at that handle. Uh, I'm on Twitter as Dan Abramov with underscore. So it's like Dan underscore Abramov, A-B-R-A-M-O-V. You can follow me there. And I am I have unpronounceable uh, nickname on GitHub. So just <laughs> don't bother. Go to my Twitter account and you can click there. All right. Well, thank you, fellas. Uh, and thanks to our panel. Uh, we'll wrap up the show and we will catch everyone next week. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit com to learn more. Do you wish you could be part of the discussion on JavaScript Jabber? Do you have a burning question for one of our guests? Now you can join the action at our membership forum. You can sign up at javascriptjabber.com slash jabber, and there you can join discussions with the regular panelists and our guests. 